Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Um, cereal potluck. Awesome. Okay. Well, welcome. Welcome, everyone. If it's your first time joining us, thanks so much for being here. My name's Russ. I'm one of the pastors, and as Joseph said, uh, we are a community of faith that believes no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, uh, there's room at the table. And happy Mother's Day to the moms in the room. Can we give it up for the moms? Yeah. Yes. When I think about Mother's Day, I'm always reminded of a line that I either read or heard. Those are usually the best lines when you don't know where you got it from. Um, but it, it goes, we grow up idolizing our fathers, but it's our mothers that we can't live without. Um, and I think that, that proves really, really true. Um, what's so fascinating about the church, though, is that in the church, the idea of family is totally reimagined, which is really interesting because most, if not all of the first Christians for the first like five years or so, um, maybe a little less, but all the first Christians were Jews. And to be uh, a Jew, the way you become a Jew is you give birth to a Jew. So um, Jewish people, you're born into the Jewish family. Um, the, the blood of Judaism was passed on through the blood of the parents. But the church, who were all Jews at first, discovered really early on that that's not the case with Christians. You're not born a Christian. You're baptized a Christian. The way you enter into the family is through the waters of death and resurrection. So what that means for family is that in this room is we have a ton of fathers and mothers. We have a ton of sisters and brothers and aunts and uncles. It is quite true to say that this is the new family. Um, and so, you know, to... I realize that this day can be very joyful and also very hard for a lot of people. But with that understanding of the new family to, to the mothers and the stepmothers and the godmothers and the sisters and the friends and those who have born children, those who have lost children, those who have loved children, you are the solid stuff of the world. You are the secret of the universe, the steady taken for granted firmament that binds all good things together. It is your maternal nature that humbles the world, assuages the world, and draws the world back into the womb of love. So everything we are, as Abraham Lincoln once quipped, everything I am, all the good stuff that I am, I owe to my dear mother. So we would say everything we are, all the good stuff that we are, we owe to our dear mothers, to you, our dear mothers. So if you feel comfortable with this, you don't have to, but if you feel comfortable and you're sitting beside um, a woman or you, would you just reach your hand out and touch their shoulder? Um, and we just wanna pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you for laughter. Thank you for words that don't come out right. <laughs> the way, <laughs> and the fact that you still know what I meant <laughs> and what we mean. <laughs> um, Lord, thank you that both male and female, the fullness of the Imago Dei comes from you, the Creator. Thank you that the core of your heart is maternal, desires to draw all people back into your womb of love. Thank you for the way that we see in our mothers and our sisters and in the women in our lives love and acceptance and steadiness and selflessness. 
Lord, I pray for the moms in this room. I pray that you would provide them with peace and recognition on this day. That they would know that you see them. That you see them and their labor is not in vain. I pray for the women in this room who desperately want to be moms. And then I, I ask, Lord, that the same would be true, that they would know that you see them and that you are with them. I pray for those who have lost children, that they would know that you see them and that you love them. Lord, give us eyes to see your goodness. Give us eyes to notice the ways that you are at work and most of the time, the ways you are at work invisibly. The steady, taken-for-granted ways that your kingdom is spreading. We worship you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, if you are, I'm pulling out my phone because I forgot to set up my clock, so this is my timepiece. Um, if you are joining us for the first time, we are in the middle of a series called A Subversive Church. A Subversive Church. And we are two-thirds of the way there, which is crazy. I feel like we just started it. Um, I'm clearly a Bible nerd that you're like, are we, we're not done yet? <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, we've gone, it's, it's taken, you know, I don't know what I'm saying. Anyway, we're in a subversive church. Um, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and we are talking about how um, he is shaping this new family of Jesus followers um, into people who actually think like Jesus. Um, and he's sort of revealing to them, subverting their assumptions, their understanding of what it means to be human, of what it means to follow this God, um, so as to uh, reform their mindsets, reform their mindsets, both as individuals and as a collective, so that they can sort of look more like Jesus on earth, look more like the kingdom. And today we're only gonna be reading three verses. We're gonna sort of do a two-part mini-series um, on chapter 12, both today and next week. So we're going to start with three verses, chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, and then next week we're going to take on the rest of it. So if you have your Bibles, open that, or if not, we are going to display it on the screen um, behind me. This is what Paul writes. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were Gentiles, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to spend the next two weeks talking about the Holy Spirit, which is already an impossible task. Ask, what is the Holy Spirit? If you look throughout the, the history of the church, uh, various answers, you get a lot. And they sort of all center around this one idea. The Holy Spirit is incredibly mysteriousness, mysterious. Um, the Holy Spirit is the mystery of God, the wildness of God, the secret of God, the wooer of God. I only put this out here because it's uh, Mother's Day, um, and I just think this is really fascinating. You can do what you want with it. But in the Hebrew language, which is uh, the Old Testament, um, Israel's scriptures came first. Uh, the word for spirit, ruach, is feminine. It's a feminine noun. In the Greek, which came later in the time of Jesus, um, the word for spirit is pneuma, which is a neuter. So in the Greek language, you have masculine nouns, feminine nouns, and you have neuter nouns, um, which is neither male nor female. But then 
as sort of time's gone on, generally, and I do this too, and it's, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, um, but I, we address the Holy Spirit with a masculine pronoun, with he. And I only bring that up because it's really fascinating. Um, yeah, it's just a fascinating piece of history. You know, do what you want with that. Um, but all that to say that the Holy Spirit is really tough to pin down. Tough to pin down. It's mystery. It's wildness. It's the secret. And I want to present one more metaphor for you as you go forth of what is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? I want to say, contend that the Holy Spirit is God's mojo. All right? You're never going to forget that. The Holy Spirit is God's mojo. Now, what is mojo? I don't know. <laughs> we can't really articulate. We can't grab hold of mojo, but we know when we're in the presence of mojo, don't we? Yes. Like we know it. You can't really articulate it. It's, it's not something we grasp onto, but when you're in the presence of it, you know it. You feel it. It does something to you. The Holy Spirit is God's mojo. Now, why this is interesting for us is because these first three verses, Paul is making a couple uh, general claims about the Holy Spirit and about the Corinthians' understanding of what is spiritual and spirituality. And then he goes in, next week we'll talk about it in the rest of the chapter, and talk about what the Holy Spirit does. But we know this because of a certain Greek word. We see in verse 1, we say, he says about um, spiritual matters, and he uses the word pneumatikon which I just uh, said, pneuma, is the word for spirit in the Greek. However, there are two words that you can use to talk about spiritual matters, spiritual gifts. The other one is charisma or, or charism. Um, that means a spiritual gift. And he uses that in verse 4, talking about gifts of the spirit. But in verse 1, he doesn't say that. He uses pneumaticum. So I only bring that up to say, um, some of our Bibles say now about spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be uninformed. But really what Paul is saying is about matters pertaining to the Spirit. I don't want you to be uninformed. Then later on we'll talk about the gifts that the Spirit gives. Um, the Corinthians are calling themselves spiritual is basically what's going on. They're calling themselves spiritual and spirituality for them is an exercise in magical powers, basically. Uh, revelation, insight, words of wisdom, uh, ecstatic utterances, speaking in different languages, which is called tongue speech. And they basically wrote to Paul asking, is this the Holy Spirit? And in effect, he goes, well, yes and no. <laughs> like a great pastor, right? Yes, but also no. It is, it is. But what he's trying to reveal to them is like much of their letter, as we've seen thus far, they are trying to extract the spirit and the spiritual stuff and leave God. In essence, what they're trying to do is isolate and extract the mojo and leave God behind. They're saying, I, I, I like the mojo, I just don't like the one who it comes from, who it emanates from. We have a certain group of people in our own day and age, in our own culture, we might be some of them in this room who are doing the exact same things that the Corinthians were doing. Only, this is how we describe it. We describe it with this language. Maybe you've heard it. I'm spiritual. I'm just not religious. Anyone ever heard that? Anyone ever say that? You don't have to put your hands up. Um, I definitely have thought certain things, certain strands of that before. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. This is a growing group in our country. In a 2012 Pew survey, one out of five people responded 
as, as this, saying they're religious, oh, sorry, one out of five said they're religiously unaffiliated, but 37% of that one out of five said they still consider themselves spiritual, that they're spiritual, but they're not religious. So that means 7% of America identifies as this. 7% of our country says, I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. That's more than Muslims, it's more than Jews, it's more than atheists in this country. That's a sizable proportion of our country. Why? What is, what is um, good about this worldview? Well, a couple advantages of this worldview, and I, I think I put in parentheses alleged advantages, um, but a couple advantages. One, it claims to be more loving. It claims to be more loving than religion. Religion is viewed as intrinsically exclusive, right? It's exclusive. It has exclusive views, exclusive doctrine, exclusive behaviors. It's, it's intrinsically exclusive. And by saying, I don't want religion, but I like spirituality, I'm able to affirm more people. I'm able to affirm mystery. Exclusivity is viewed as violence. Um, but in a way, when you start peeling it back, you realize that it's exclusive in its own way too. Um, so my wife is from Portland, Oregon. That's where we met. I worked at a church out there. And Portland, I love Portland. It is the land of the spiritual but not religious. Like anyone who's been there, it is the land. It's where everyone who's, that's where the 7% are. They're all in Portland, all right? Um, and I heard a pastor say, our pastor uh, said out there, he goes, what I found is that it's okay in Portland to be spiritually seeking, but it's not okay to spiritually find. It's okay to spiritually seek, that's good. But as soon as you make the claim that I think I got something here, now you're viewed as exclusive. So in a sense, that is an exclusive statement from the spiritual, not religious, to sort of cut you off and be like, no, that's too far. But it does claim to be more loving than religion. Another reason, another advantage of this view to be spiritual but not religious, it's kind of a way to have your cake and eat it too, isn't it? You're, to, to be spiritual but not religious sort of affirms some idea about divinity or transcendence. It sort of affirms, it, it, makes, it allows room for that, that encounter you had that one time when you were at this, this funeral, at this wedding, or this moment where you felt something. It sort of allows for transcendence, allows for divinity, but without having to go all the way into figuring out who that divine being is, right? Because if you actually went all the way and said, I need to figure out who this divinity is, who this divine being is, well, then they might have something to say to you at that point, which you would have to listen to or not listen to. It's kind of like in relationships when you know something's up, um, but you don't want to ask. Why don't you want to ask? You don't want to ask because as soon as you put words to it, you're afraid your suspicions will be proven true. And then you can't be ignorant anymore, right? You can't plead ignorance at that point. It's the same idea. It's our way of having our cake by saying there is some sort of form of mystery and spirituality um, and transcendence uh, in this world, um, but I'm not going to go all the way and figure out the name of that being. It's also hybrid of stuff, right? To be spiritual but not religious, it's like a hybrid. You get all the best things the world has to offer. Take a little bit from Buddhism, take some Taoism, take a little Christianity. I like the, the turning the cheek thing. I'm going to take that. Um, and you sort of get to like create your own hybrid of, of your worldview. Um, so you get to enjoy all the cool stuff, 
of faith, all the cool stuff of religion, without the hard task of commitment, right? So maybe as I've sort of been describing this, you see the fundamental issue with this view to be spiritual but not religious. Uh, the best way to describe it, I think, is that the, in effect, what it is, is an open relationship. It's an open relationship. You have divinity when you need it, need him, need her. You have certain scriptures that you can apply to your life when you need them in that moment. So you basically have what you need then, but no hard work of commitment. No hard work of commitment. Um, and to sort of push a little bit further, I think some of us in this room who call ourselves followers of Jesus might have an open relationship with Jesus. Where we sort of, there are certain instances where we call upon him when we need him, when um, we really depend on him, but we sort of avoid some of the hard stuff that comes with committing to a relationship. And that's the fundamental issue with this view. The fundamental issue is that it's all about me, <laughs> isn't it? That's what an open relationship is. It's all about me. I, am, I engage in an open relationship if there's some things about this person that I like and um, they fulfill me, but I also, I got too much, I got too much mojo, right? I don't wanna mix metaphors, that was bad, I shouldn't do that. Um, but there's some things about this relationship which is good and makes me happy, but there's also not all things, right? So I engage over here, I engage over here, which also fulfills me, which means fundamentally I view relationships as how that benefits me, right? Not about how it benefits the other person. And that's really what's going on here. I love how David Wolp, um, who's a, a rabbi, puts it. He goes, I have found too often that when people say, I stay away from the synagogue, too much politics, what they mean is that they did not get their way, <laughs> right? Isn't that sort of proved true? That really this whole, I'm spiritual but not religious means I take the pieces that I like and that make me feel good and I leave all the rest of the stuff that challenges me, all the rest of the stuff that calls me to account, the real stuff of relationships where I don't get my way, but I actually lay my way down for the person I'm in relationship with. Um, Reverend Lillian Daniel wrote in a piece for the New York Times about this movement. She goes, I dread the conversation with the person who finds, finds out I am a minister and wants to use the flight time to explain to me that he is spiritual but not religious. Such a person will always share this as if it's some kind of daring insight, unique to him, bold in its rebellion against the religious status quo. Before you know it, he's telling me he finds God in the sunsets. Spirituality fits too snugly with complacency, even hedonism. After all, who doesn't like walks in nature? I know some of you New Yorkers don't, I've learned that. Um, whereas religion is better at challenging people to face death, to fight poverty, to oppose injustice. Religion, by bringing people together in community at regular intervals, facilitates an ongoing conversation about matters outside the self. I'm gonna say that last sentence again. Religion, by bringing people together in community at regular intervals, facilitates an ongoing conversation about matters outside the self. See, to be spiritual but not religious is never to subject yourself to someone else's opinion about you, someone else to challenge, to, to name you. 
to, to a group, to subject yourself to a group to tell you what you don't necessarily want to hear, what you can't necessarily see about yourself. Um, it's the idea that I believe that I know what's best for myself. Or as David Wolp writes, institutions enable, because that's really the alternative, right? You can do it yourself or you can be a part of an institution. Institutions enable, but they also frustrate, as do families and every other organized sector of human life. If you want frictionless, do it alone. If you want frictionless, do it alone, both with God and with one another. If you want total lack of friction, lack of conflict, don't get involved in committed relationships, both with, with divinity or with each other. Just go at life alone. Now, if that's sort of the, the surface intro level of what this view is, what drove this movement? And maybe some of this is kind of obvious. Well, the first thing that drove this mo movement is that in the West, we love some me, don't we? We love me. It feels like with each passing decade, uh, the impregnability of people being able to speak into one another's lives has gotten stronger and stronger, which is ironic. I mean, it's a tragic irony um, because it feels like we're able to speak into each other's lives less and less, but we want it more and more, don't we? I mean, that's kind of what's happened with social media and with Facebook in a lot of ways. We're all starving to be heard, to be seen, to have someone speak. So we've like just sort of descended in this one area, this one vehicle with all our thoughts and opinions, but we're not actually seeing one another. We're not actually sitting in the painful process of letting someone see us and speak to us, um, which corresponds with the rates of depression, the rates of anxiety, the rates of reported loneliness and suicide are spiking just going up and up. That's what drove this moment. The West loves individualism. The second thing that drove it, uh, the French Catholic writer, uh, Charles Pugui, he once said, everything begins in mysticism and ends in politics. Everything begins in mysticism and ends in politics. A lot of people, and I mentioned it a little earlier, a lot of people when they say I'm spiritual but not religious, what they're really crying out against are institutions, right? I'm a millennial. There are definitely some institutions I don't like, okay? They're crying out institutions. That's what we're against. Institutions have been and can be the source of a lot of oppression and pain. And so then a lot of people view institutions, specifically religious institutions, as intrinsically oppressive, intrinsically bad. Now it's true, often religions and even forms of Christianity with its sharp lines of doctrine, with its sharp lines of morality, it can be wielded abusively. It can, and we've seen it. But institutions are the only way, as we just pointed out, that we move outside ourselves into freedom, into a new uncharted reality. Committed relationships are the only way that you move outside of your own bubble, your own isolation, into a new possibility. I love the opening scene to Patch Adams. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Um, it's it, uh, the, the late Robin Williams. And um, it opens with him um, checking himself into a psychiatric hospital uh, for suicidal thoughts. 
And he has a roommate, and his roommate uh, sees squirrels. I think he has schizophrenia. So he sees squirrels, and, and one night they're trying to sleep, and he has an episode, his roommate does. And so um, Patch, rather than like sort of saying, hey, go to sleep, Rudy, go to sleep, he joins in. I don't know if you've seen this, but he joins in. And they have this like raucous time of shooting squirrels in their bedroom. And, and really, Patch is like going all in with the character and helping out Rudy. The very next morning, he goes to the, the head of the hospital and he goes, I want to be released. And the reason why, he goes, I know what I want to do. I want to help people. For that brief moment where I was engaged with another person, I was outside of myself. I, I, I didn't see my own loneliness, my own depression. I was able to help them. And I realized that's sort of the key. That's the secret. Now, it, it's true. Institutions can be wielded abusively, but they're also within those relationships, the only way we move outside ourselves. If they weren't, why do we still get married? Why do we still do that? We're not fundamentally against marriage. We're against abusive forms of marriage, right? We're not fundamentally against government. We're against abusive forms of government. It's not the clear lines that are the issue. The issue is when someone wields those clear lines abusively. When I'm in a relationship, in my marriage, I want clear lines of, of what constitutes fidelity and infidelity. We should have a conversation about that, all right? Like this should, and obviously there's some things that are very obvious, but like those, we want clear lines. It's not that we want those to be opaque. It's not that we, you know, we'll leave it up to chance. We want clear lines. What we don't want is someone to wield those lines abusively, to wield that power abusively or oppressively. And that's the issue. So what is going on? What is going on when people say, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious, I'm against institutions? What they're really against is the abuse of power, which comes back to the fundamental issue, I think, of the gospel. Everything we just sang, everything that Jesus offers, this is the key issue, power. Power. Many times, institutions can shift their focus from the original intent, which Pugui would say is mysticism, to consolidating modes of power. And at that point, it becomes oppressive, or it can become oppressive. Um, just the other day, Anna and I were filming a wedding, and um, we, uh, sh she'll tell you, I, well, maybe she won't tell you this. <laughs> I, I don't get, it takes a lot for someone to get under my skin, and like for me to just always be irked um, by them or by a situation. Uh, I actually had a friend in college who got mad at me because she said I never got mad at people. Um, yeah, I know. I was like, well, this feels backwards. But um, the other day we filmed a wedding. We filmed a wedding. And, and on the way up, it was interesting. We were riding up with a couple of photographers. And I don't know how it happened, but one of them sort of made a shot at Christians and at Christianity, which is totally fine. That doesn't bother us at all. But we didn't want it to be awkward later on when she found out oh, I'm also a pastor. And so Anna like casually dropped, you know, that, you know, we started the church and she was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. And it's like, it's totally fine. Um, but then we got to the church uh, where the wedding was and uh, it was a very old church, very big church. And um, guys, I got enraged. I was furious. It was very much along the lines of um, like, you can stand here. You can't stand here. You can say this. You can't say this. Uh, you have 15 minutes. At the end of that, 
you have to go or you have to pay more. Like it was totally like sharp lines, just really hard. Like I wanted to say, ma'am, I'm on good terms with Jesus. I'm pretty sure I can stand there. Like it's okay. Um, (laughs) But it was very much sort of these sharp lines, this sense of here, not there, there, not there. Um, The sermon during the wedding was all about the building where they were in. And I kid you not, and I'm, let me preface this, I am not advocating for this at all, but I was just enraged filming this wedding. I was thinking if I took over this church, the first thing I would do, and I wouldn't, but the first thing I would do is I would burn the building down. <laughs> it's the first thing I would do, burn it down to the ground. It has become an idol. It has become where everyone is focusing their worship and it needs to go. As I was filming, and of course, because I'm always thinking about like sermons and theology, I'm like, I understand when Jesus was flipping tables. I get it. I get his fury at the Pharisees now for the first time. Um, It's just because what what was the, the issue with the Pharisees? One, they had been gifted positions of privilege to serve people, but instead their focus was on consolidating their power, which we don't have to look far over the last couple of years to see that as well. Gifted positions of privilege by their God, but instead they focus on consolidating structures of power, like that dumb building. Burn it down. You can stand wherever you want. We're starting in people's homes again. And we left. And I'm thinking over there as we're filming, these are people who, I got to know the groom and some of the grooms, and I'm pretty sure, I'm just taking a guess, but I'm pretty sure they don't attend church regularly. Um, And so I'm thinking this might be the first time in a while, maybe the last time in a while, definitely the last time in a while, they're going to step foot in a church and actually listen to who this Jesus guy is. And what are they leaving with? Well, Jesus cares a lot about this building. And Jesus cares a lot about where they stand and don't stand. And Jesus cares, you know, you can do that, but don't do that. And I'm just thinking, oh my goodness. So then we get back in the car and I know I didn't need to defend Jesus, but I felt like I really needed to defend Jesus. (laughs) because we're riding with that photographer earlier, and I don't even remember what I said, but I said something along the lines of like, hey, that's not the gospel. <laughs> I just want to make sure. And it come to find out that she grew up in the church. The church is similar to that. And uh, it was during a party month, so we were talking about, we we're about to have a dance party uh, for our last Sunday, and she was like, I, and I don't know if she was just being nice, but she said something along the lines of, well, maybe if church was more like that, I wouldn't have left it so long ago. And I'm like, gosh, gosh. That's the issue. That's why people say I'm spiritual but not religious because they can't let go that there is some truth to this story. But they just, they just can't handle the consolidating structures of power. I lost my place in my notes. Where are we going? <laughs> but this is also why Jesus is so compelling. This is why when people who want nothing to do with the church, when they read the story of Jesus, they're like, I want a lot to do with him, or this guy is amazing. Because contrary to many of his followers, to myself in places, he has the most rightful claim to power. His sermons, people are constantly saying he teaches as, as if one who has authority. His healings, there's documented people who are healed of physical diseases, healed of all sorts of things. His, his power over the elements, he stills storms, he walks on water, he's raised from the dead. This guy has the rightful claim to power and yet at every turn in the journey, what do you see? Don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. 
No, 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 I'm not going to rule that way. That's not what I'm about. I rule through love. Now, don't get it twisted. A lot of people want to say Jesus is an anarchist. He blows it all up. He doesn't. He starts an institution. We see it. They're called the 12 disciples. He calls 12 around him, and there's 70 outside of them. Uh, he was the original Bernie Madoff, in a sense. Uh, just kidding. He wasn't. Again, I shouldn't go there. Um, he starts an institution. He delivers a manifesto on the kingdom's politics. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. He's starting, he's sort of announcing the kingdom. He starts an institution. The difference is that it's not an institution premised on his power or control. It's an institution premised on his voluntary powerlessness. The one who does not claim his power, but the one who continues to see people, to love people, and to sacrifice himself unto death. Therefore, God has given him the name that is above every name. That is the core of our story. That is the core of our institution. Not drawing in, which is what consolidation is all about. Drawing in and making firm, but pouring out and overflowing. Like a wave like a wave that is just moving. This is agape love. This is the love ascribed to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's a love that does not seek its own interest. It's a love that says, we'll burn the building down if this will help you see how much I love you. It's a love that puts you first, that is putting others first over and over and over. What we see in Jesus is an institution, but it's erected upon voluntary powerlessness. Well, then, if this is all true, who's animating all this? I'm coming full circle. Stay with me, guys. Who's animating all this? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the mojo of God that is drawing all in and sending all out. It's like a beautiful dance, a beautiful current. Let's return to our text. So Paul opens his discussion to the Corinthians, to those who say, I'm spiritual but not religious, I like the mojo, but I don't necessarily want the rest of it. And he says, you know that when you were not part of God's family, you used to be carried away to idols that were incapable of speech. Therefore, I'm giving you this knowledge that no one who is speaking through the agency of the Holy Spirit says, Jesus grants a curse. And no one is able to declare Jesus is Lord except through the agency of the Holy Spirit. That might look a little different because I sort of um, retranslated a little bit based on some of the Greek words. The first I'm going to focus on is that phrase, when you were not part of God's family. When Paul says that, he uses the word ethne. Ethne. We have that same word. Ethnic. Ethnography. Ethne means Gentiles. Gentiles. Non-Jews. So Paul, being a good Jew, having a good Jewish worldview, um, there are basically two groups of people in the world, <laughs> Jews and non-Jews, Jews and ethne and Gentiles. So in a sense, Paul's saying, you know that when you were formerly um, Gentiles, when you were formerly non-Jews, um, you were carried away to idols that couldn't speak. Now, here's the question. He's speaking to Corinthians, to Greeks. Is he assuming that they've become Jews now? They're still ethnes, right? They're still Greeks. What is he doing? And it's pointed out through a lot of different places in many of other Paul's letters. Uh, he's not saying that now the Corinthians have become Jews, but what he is saying is that the Corinthians have been adopted into God's family. 
So the distinction for Paul is not Jew to Gentile, Jew to non-Jew. The distinction for Paul is God's family to those not in God's family. God's family to those not in God's family. Which means the, the polarity, the dichotomy is not spiritual to religious. Paul rejects that entirely. The polarity, if we're talking about power, is who has the power? God or me? Whose family is it? God's or mine? See, notice, within spirituality, I can have power over myself, right? That's sort of the idea. I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. I take in Uh, It's open relationship. I take what I want. I'm the common denominator. I choose what's best. But you also have the power in religion, don't you? You, It's about my, my right belief system. It's about what I do or don't do. It's about right practices, right rituals. Both spirituality and religion are about us having the power to pursue the good life, the whole life, to pursue um, spiritual, you know, awakening, whatever it is. But the power's still with us. Jesus, via Paul, um, or Paul via Jesus, I don't know, one of those, he basically says, I'm going to blow that whole thing up. Because the issue is that none of you have power over your lives. This is why what Jesus offers us is not a religion and is absolutely different than anything else seen by the world, whether philosophy, spirituality, anything. It's as if he's saying, hey, this is my father's world. It's the only one there is. We made it. We made you. You're living in it. We want you to be in it. We want you to be in it, whoever you are, all of you. But the only way you get to do that is by acknowledging that it's our world, (laughs) that what I say is true. I'm not asking you to earn it as religion asks. I'm not asking you to do anything for it. You can't. I'm asking you to open your hands and receive it, to enter into it. But to receive it acknowledges that you don't have the power in this situation. It's not based on your actions. It's not based on your beliefs that allow you to enter into it. To receive it is simply that, to receive it. You're like, well, duh, no, no, no. It's simply to open your heart and your mind and to receive and acknowledge that you are living in God's world. God, who is very personal, who we see who God is, And Jesus, it's his world. You don't have the power to do that. I have it. Look at me. Look how I live. See, spirituality and religion say, I do things, I believe things, they make my life whole. I have power. Jesus says, I do nothing. I I believe nothing. I acknowledge this is God's world, and Jesus is the hope of it. I receive that love and invitation to live in that world. It has nothing to do with spirituality versus religion. That's not it at all. Blows that up. It has everything to do with power. Who has it? Whose family is it? Is it God's family? Or are we refusing to enter into that family? So Paul writes, you know that when you were not part of God's family, you used to be carried away to idols that cannot speak. That phrase, idols that cannot speak, we were just talking about it, weren't we? self-induced spirituality or religion, not premised on a committed relationship, not premised on a relationship with a personal God who can speak back, 
No, 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 no. I can speak to an idol that doesn't speak back, which therefore means I'm not in a relationship. I'm the God. Whether through my spirituality or through my religion, I'm the God. I determine what's best for me. We were led away, says Paul, when we were not part of God's family, we were led away to, to these dumb idols that don't speak back to us, that don't challenge us, that don't tell us what's true and what's right because it might hurt a little bit. It's premised on my power over my life. Spirituality is the constant search. Religion is the rules that I follow. But there's still, the, the common denominator for both of those is I have the power. I do it. And neither is what Jesus offers. Neither. He offers you a real relationship with a real God. He offers you a real seat at a real family table. And it's gonna be painful and it's gonna be hard and you're gonna learn some things and you're gonna to have to sacrifice your power over your life. But that's the most real. <laughs> that's the only real thing there is. He offers us a committed relationship with God. So then he says, Paul writes, you know that when you were not part of God's family, you were carried away to idols that were incapable of speech. You had the power over your life. Therefore, I'm giving you this knowledge about the Holy Spirit. No one who is speaking through the agency of the Holy Spirit says Jesus grants a curse. And no one is able to declare Jesus is Lord except through the agency of the Holy Spirit. That seems so obvious, but it's, it's actually, when you dig in a little deeper, there's more going on. In the Greek, it only has two words uh, for that first one. Jesus grants a curse. Maybe your translation says Jesus be cursed. The two words are anathema, Jesus. Anathema, curse, Jesus. So it can be translated a lot of different ways. But a lot of scholars say that um, uh, the Corinthians through, um, remember the upwardly mobile society, the patronage system, they were constantly obsessed and um, uh, really like obsessed about their own personal growth and development. So deities, you called on deities to curse your enemies, to curse others. So maybe scholars wonder if a lot of the Corinthians are calling on Jesus to curse their enemies, to get what they want, right? Deities were magic, like a genie in a bottle. You rub it the right way. If you, <laughs> come on, you had to go there. You rub it the right way. Um, say the right words. <laughs> bubble, you know, the, the right incantation comes out. Live the right life. God gives me what I want. Blessing for me, cursing for my enemies. Once again, who has the power? I do. I know what to do. I know what to say. Jesus does what I want. But Paul goes, that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, that's not the relationship you're in. You're not in a relationship with a, with a, a genie. You're not in a relationship uh, with a dumb idol that can't speak back. You're in a relationship with the living God, the creator, the only God there is. And when you recognize that, the Holy Spirit leads us to say, Jesus is Lord. Now, at first glance, that, that might seem a bit antiquated, and it kind of is. So I want to try to translate it for us. The word Lord is kurios, kurios. And even though in our day and age, we don't go around calling people lords anymore, right? It's specifically reserved for religious language. Um, but in the first century in the Roman Empire, uh, you use kurios a lot. So it was like a term of respect for the master, the, the master of the household. The Lord of the household was kurios. Um, it was, it's often pointed out that um, the, the Pledge of Allegiance to Caesar um, was Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. 
So when Paul says the Holy Spirit leads us to say, Jesus is Lord, it's an expression of total allegiance, total loyalty, total trust and dependence, total powerlessness. You're giving away your power to Jesus. So in a sense, a better translation for us, you know, um, when Paul writes, no one is speaking through the agency of the Spirit, says Jesus grants a curse. And you aren't able to declare, except through the agency of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in charge. And I, and I dare you to try it. Not just say the words, but like confess it in your heart. Mean it in your mind. Feel it. Can you? Jesus is in charge of my life, of the world, of everything that's going on. I've had so many conversations with friends um, who rightly, they're like, hey, I can get down with God, but why does it have to be Jesus, right? I can get down with God, but why does it have to be Jesus? What are they acknowledging? They're acknowledging power, the transfer of power. It's the same reason that G.K. Chesterton writes, um, Jesus does not tell us to love humanity as ourself, right? That's easy. Humanity can be anyone. I can choose who humanity is. What does he tell us? He tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. Our neighbor can't be anyone. Our neighbor is specifically someone, like with a real story. And you feel that awkwardness, don't you? I have to love that person, whoever they are. It's a transfer of power, right? That's what's going on. I say I love God. God can be anyone. I make God in my own image, but God comes in the form of Jesus and says, this is who I am. Well, now it gets really real. Do I love Jesus? Do I say Jesus is in charge? Not me. Because then that takes on flesh and blood and that gets super sticky and awkward. The real stuff of relationships. In essence, <laughs> C.S. Lewis writes, there are only two types of people at the end of this world. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those who God says to them, your will be done. What's he saying? So in, in essence, there are two types of people. Those who say to God, Jesus is in charge. And those who God says to them, you're in charge. He's saying there's one world. There's one world and every eye will see who is in charge at the end. The one position of power that we have is over who we offer our allegiance to. Do we accept the world or do we say no? Even if it means death, I won't accept this. I won't pledge allegiance. And the amazing thing about our God and the amazing thing about this relationship is that he won't take it from us. He won't force us. He will woo he will continue to pursue, but he will not force us to enter into the only world there is. There is one world, the one God created, the one Jesus came as the face of God to prove his love, to prove his faithfulness, to die rather than destroy us, to be raised from the dead as proof that God's world is free of abuse and power struggles and oppression. And that world will be the last word do you receive that world? Do you receive it? Because intrinsic to receiving it is the yielding of your power to the unique person of Jesus. And trusting him is the confession of your heart. Jesus is in charge. Can you say that? Like fully say that and mean it. Not God is in charge. Can you say, Jesus is in charge.
And the Holy Spirit is the tireless worker, orchestrating, directing, inviting, wooing all the world to know that we live in a good world, a good feast, but it's one where Jesus is in charge. I'm reminded of Leslie Newbigin, who was a missionary in India from England for most of his career. And he was asked one time about the world. Are you an optimist about it or are you a pessimist? And he goes, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. As if to say, I reject those terms. There's a brand new world I'm living in. We could apply it to our own day, our own context. Are you, are you religious or are you spiritual? I am neither religious nor spiritual. Jesus Christ is in charge. I am neither religious nor spiritual. Jesus Christ is in charge. And that's a really, really good thing. The Holy Spirit is drawing all of us into that. And until we get to that place, to that place of repentance and confession, we can't even begin to understand the gifts that the Holy Spirit levies upon us. Will you pray with me? Lord, how often we forget we are living in your world. <laughs> and that we forget doesn't change anything. I'm reminded of the, the line, a human can no more diminish your glory by refusing to praise you than a madman can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on a sheet of paper. Our unnecessary fights and quarrels, our unnecessary fear and anxiety, when this is your world and it's already won back, you created it, you came for it, the table is being set and all are invited. The only condition, and it's not even, it's not even that you're being malevolent toward us. It's just the only condition is to wake up to the only world there is. The one where you're in charge, where it's your world, where your love wins, where your grace wins, where your mercy blows us over as we sing. Why would we not want that? We don't want that, Lord, because we know that intrinsic to that is we have to give up our power over our lives. We have to surrender control and say, you are in charge. I'm not in charge. I'm not, Lord. There's so many things I want. So many things I want for myself, for my family. There's so many things I want for this world, but I'm not in charge. You are. And so Holy Spirit, I've, I just ask that you speak to every heart in this room, wherever they are. Whether they've said that, made that confession a while ago and, and realized how true it was, had their eyes opened, 
but became focused on consolidating their, their mode of power. However small that power over their own life was, would you convict them of that? Like a good relationship, though it's so painful to hear the truth, would you convict them and say, you've, you've taken back power into your own hands. You're not trusting me. You're not trusting me. Have you forgotten what world you live in? Have you forgotten who I am? Open those hands back up. And right now, would you just in your heart confess it? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is in charge. I'm not in charge, God. Jesus, you're in charge. And if there are people in this room, Lord, who are here and who are so compelled by you but are so terrified by that confession, would you convict their hearts? Would you speak to them right where they are? Would you tell them that you have not come to hurt them? That you know they have tons of questions, all in due time. Right now, there's just one question before them. Who's in charge? Will you try something different? Will you try something different? Will you take the plunge? Will you take the leap, step in, Open those hands and say, Jesus, you are in charge. Jesus, you're in charge. Jesus, you're in charge. Holy Spirit, just minister to us. Confirm your name. Confirm the name of Jesus. Confirm the world we're living in one where you've invited us to participate with you, but where we're not in charge of it. We're neither spiritual nor religious. Jesus Christ is in charge. He is risen from the dead. And that creates a new world. We can't do that unless you reveal it to us, Lord. So would you do so for every person in this room? Would you reveal areas in their life where you want to take back charge, where you're, but you won't take it from them, where they have to relinquish it? Reveal that to them. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.